Hi there. Hello, everyone. It is the 20th, excuse me, it is the 20th of October. Yeah, that's right. October 2022. My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 136 of my live chat. I appreciate you joining me. Thank you very much. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the thumbs up button. Subscribe if you haven't already, please. Uh, if you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, do be so kind as to give me a nice review. Uh, today, today, what we're going to get to, I was, I've seen some of the questions already, largely just UFC 280 stuff. The, I would argue the very best card of the year is now just 48 hours away. Well, the main card actually would have started already. So we're less than 48 hours, like 47 hours away from the main card starting. Very excited about it. Very happy about it. So Thank you so much for joining me, and without further ado, we do have some housekeeping notes, but without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? And we're back. All right. How are you doing? Um, housekeeping notes. Folks have been asking for a shipping address to send stuff to me. Now, I'm going to warn you. If you're going to send me something for whatever reason, um, you have to do it before the before December, basically. This will be only effective for the rest of this month and then November, and then that's it. Here it is. Here is your shipping address. For folks who are listening on the podcast, this is what it is. Luke Thomas News. Yes, that's the sort of incorporated name. 2000 Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest Suite 7000. By the way, you have to put NW in there. DC is built on the quadrant system. There's northeast, southeast, northwest, and south. Actually, technically, there's a southwest as well. Um, this is 2000 Pennsylvania Avenue, northwest, Washington, D.C., 20006. Take a screenshot. Do whatever you have to. There it is. Luke Thomas News, 2000 Pennsylvania Avenue, northwest, suite 7000, Washington, D.C., 20006. There you have it. All right. So there is the shipping address. Appreciate you guys joining me today. Excited about the questions. Excited to be here. Um, one final note, as you guys know, I put up my Olivera blueprint video, sort of a breakdown. Uh, the, the responses were quite positive. It came out of the gate roaring hot, and I will be honest about it. Then traffic just completely fell off a cliff. And I think it's because sort of looking at who's watching and who's not, I think it's because it was just way too long, way too long, an hour. It's very hard to recommend something to watch for an hour um, on YouTube these days. Um, people will do it. It does happen. It can happen. This will be a live event, which will go over an hour. But you, you get the idea more generally. It's just difficult to get people to sit down and be like, oh, I'm going to give an hour to learning about the very intricate details of Charles Oliveira's game. So my goal is to really get those tightened up. I wanted to get them around 20 minutes or so. I think it's a, it's a much easier way to get people to watch. But if you did watch, thank you very much. If you have not watched, I would strongly – I'm proud of the work. I think it's pretty good. I think you can learn a lot about Charles Oliveira. I did tape study from Guida to Lee to, obviously, Chandler and Gaethje and everyone in between at Lightweight. Um, we did a lot of looking at what he does and why it works for him so well. Um, and so if you did watch, thank you very much. And if you've not, please give it a shot. But just as a heads up for everybody else, I think that uh, I'm going to try and make those shorter going forward. Okay. All right. This is how we works. I put up a thread on the youtube.com slash Luke Thomas community thread on Wednesdays. You guys fill it up. I'll go for an hour on those questions. If you have a paid one, I will get to those exclusively. We'll put your uh, question on the screen at the end. You are under no obligation to do that. If you want to enjoy it for free, you certainly may do that as well. Okay. All right. With that in mind, let's get to the first question. Now, my producer, Othello, asked me to turn on um, 
I think, what did he ask me to do? Put it on. He asked me for a, a mode so you guys could see it a little bit better. I forgot. Oh, yeah, dark mode. I forgot to put it on dark mode. So Othello, who's watching, please don't kill me. I didn't get that part right, but um, the rest, I hope, is better. All right, let me blow up this so you can see it. There we are. Let's get to your questions. There we go. Okay. First things first. Uh, hi, Luke. Everyone is talking about the potential upsides for Sugar Sean beating Jan. But as a fan of O'Malley, I worry about the potential Man, I fear a bad loss could be irreparable when the mental game and confidence is a huge factor surrounding future fights. Day one fan. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a great question. In fact, I just did uh, Jimmy Smith's show on SiriusXM, and he was asking, uh, you know, basically about the idea that, you know, is Sugar, is Sugar Sean like faking confidence? And I'm like, no, there's no chance he's faking confidence. You know, and I've seen people like, oh, he's delusional. Folks, I got news for you. Let's assume for the sake of argument that you are right, that Sean O'Malley is delusional. He would be identical to virtually every other fighter I've ever met if that were true. I mean, the guy fist fights for cash in a steel cage. It is very hard to be rationally grounded when you do that. You do have to have, obviously, some rational assessments about what is possible, how hurt you are, how tired you are. But that entire job is based around um, gall. That entire job is based around just having a really ferocious mental attitude, which means it may not necessarily always be grounded in reality. And sometimes that can backfire. Sometimes that can actually propel you to greatness. You can actually overcome whatever limits that you ordinarily would have given into were you more rational to do that. So like, is he potentially delusional thinking he might beat Jan? I mean, first of all, he might beat Jan, but let's say for the sake of argument that he loses relative to the question, he would he would not be in any way alone or unusual if, in fact, you wanted to argue he was delusional. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is, yeah, it's a real possibility. Now, it would depend on the nature of the losses. First of all, it wasn't really just one loss that got Darren Till. It was a series of losses. It was like, obviously, the Masvidal loss was not great. The Whitaker loss, I don't think, beat him up too bad, but because um, it was close, and I think he had a bit of a moral victory there, but he had a bunch of losses in a row that just were not good for him. And so I think that is a little bit different than O'Malley just going from 12 to 1 and losing. The things that I think could be bad is that the two times he stepped up in competition were against Chito Vera and Pedro Munoz. Against Munoz, I think it is fair to say it was inconclusive. Munoz had a weird game plan where he was mirroring the stance, and every time O'Malley switched, he would switch heavy on the leg kicks and not really doing a whole lot else. Then he, get, he got eye-poked, and then it just kind of fell apart. You could make whatever you wanted of it, but it wasn't like you got a great understanding of exactly how Sean O'Malley matched up with Munoz. That's the first thing I'd say. Then you go to the Chito Vera fight. Now, that one to me is a little bit more conclusive. Chito, I think, just won it outright. But you could say, is Sean O'Malley actually brittle? Do we really know the answer to that? Maybe it was just Chito Vera and not so much him and blah, blah, blah. So uh, I would say in general, he's just, you can't argue right now that he has no chance of winning. You can't argue that he, um, you can argue he's unproven against the elite and there's just been a lot of controversy. So what I would point out to you here is if he loses and it's close, that could be deflating, but I doubt it would be severely deflating. If he takes a serious beating, yeah, that could be real bad, right? Because we're talking about a guy who's at this moment, at this moment, probably very convinced he's going to win, very convinced he's going to get his hand raised. And there's probably some part of his mind that's thinking about the future after that happens. If you go in there and you lose, one, and then two, 
you get whooped up on where you're cut, controlled, finished, right? And it's not controversial. It's not from some sciatic nerve that goes bananas. Maybe he gets choked out. He gets finished from strikes. He gets fully put out. Like, there's a lot of ways this could go, <coughs> excuse me, quite bad for him in, in one of those sort of um, theoretical possibilities. So could that derail him in a more serious way? Sure. The bigger part, though, is... It, while it could be in like this inconclusivity could be both a positive and a negative. If he wins, obviously it would be great if he wins in its own right, but you could be like, okay, well maybe the Munoz fight was a weird one. And maybe the Chito Vera fight was a slightly aberrant one. If he loses, it just sort of connects the dots all the way through um, at least for the observers on the outside. But you know, I would, I just want to caution. I think a bad beating could do damage. A single real loss when you're still in your twenties, not necessarily the end of the world mentally. It will also depend on his mental makeup too. You know, there's that as well. The other part about Till was that was just a, that was like an inevitable correction. We'll see what happens with O'Malley on Saturday, but like he was just talking a huge game and he had some nice wins, but I mean, he had a, I think he had a draw with Nicholas Dalby early on. And I think at the time, you know, I talked to some people in like UK MMA media, they were just saying like the UK was really hungry for a post Bisping star and they kind of thought they might have had one from the uk anyway they thought they might have had one until and they were kind of pushing him and it just didn't work out so there was this correction is that what's going to happen here we shall see but it wasn't just the first loss that till had it was subsequent ones as well all right greetings luke the level of skill and well-roundedness of saturday's main event is to put it mildly quite impressive how high would you rate olivera makachev skill for skill as a matchup throughout MMA history, Ooh. Um, quite high. I would rate this in terms of the overall skill level in a, in a MMA main event as one of the very highest, although you would also want to dial that back a little bit, right? Here's why. Um, one of the principal arguments being used against Makachev and his deservedness for this opportunity is that there's a claim that he has coasted on sort of the, the halo uh, I think I think the translated version of what Olivera said was he had surfed a wave that um, Habib had created. I I don't see that as untrue, uh, at least not totally untrue. Is it really untrue? Like how else would you explain where Makachev is, absent his connection to Habib? Like he would just be in a title shot after beating Tiago Moises, Bobby Green, and and Dan Hooker, maybe. And I realize that the Bobby Green fight was supposed to be Dariush, I believe, and then it fell through, which is not his fault. But still, like. Yeah, like obviously he's getting some kind of benefit. By the way, that does not mean he won't win. It just means he didn't have to do necessarily some of the other stuff to get here relative to the other contenders. Um, but to that point, like what's the most elite name on his resume? Moises, Saryukian, something like that, you know, which are good fighters, but nothing elite. So can you really say, like, you're asking about skill for skill, which is a little bit different, um, although there is a somewhat related notion. But I would say, like, Jones versus DC, pretty fucking high level of skill. Um, in their primes in 2004, Fedor versus Krokop, I mean, that was really number one, number two heavyweights in the world, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Um, so I think in the modern sense, you've got a guy in Charles who is just very offensively dynamic. Certainly dynamic in ways that a lot of other fighters in MMA history can't say that they are, right? Charles is offensive everywhere, everywhere. Um, and Makachev, in terms of skills, 
is just one of the most defensively sound fighters in all of MMA, right? Gets hit 0.84 times per minute, which is just, I mean, stupid low, very low. Um, 90% plus takedown defensive rate, 70% striking defensive rate. I mean, this guy is a, you know, he's got a sheet of armor that they just can't penetrate um, or armor suit, whatever the proper description would be. Uh, but I think that when you say skill for skill, there should also be kind of matched by what those skills have translated to intangible accomplishments and, and real meaningful accomplishments. And certainly Makachev is a accomplished fighter, but there is a gap between what he has done and something like Jones versus DC or Fedor versus Krokop or, you know, any, uh, um, honestly at the time, uh, well, skill for skill is a little bit different question. I was going to say, uh, how about GSP pen? You know, the first one anyway, or GSP pen two, you could do that one as well. You could do pen versus at the time, Gomi. It wouldn't be skill for skill. That's more ranking. Um, I'm trying to think skill for skill. Yeah. I would say Jones versus DC would be a little bit better. Um, in the totality of what both had to offer. That doesn't mean that, by the way, it's going to be a, a better or worse fight. Um, but although, you know, yeah, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. All right. Uh, do you think we have missed out on Hamzat's true form due to his COVID battle? And is it possible that he is even more willing to blast his opponent at the beginning of fights because he knows he can't go the distance anymore that is an interesting way to phrase it did his covid situation force him into i mean he's always been shot out of a cannon but has it has it ratcheted up the need for that given the reality perhaps i mean listen listen folks i know his coach um said that that is probably a contributing factor to his weight cutting um you know and i realize that this is a space where people deny covid's even a problem and they don't really want to hear from it from me so i'll keep this as brief as i possibly can which i don't have much to say the answer is who the hell knows? Who the hell knows? I would say that if he has difficulty reliably making weight, you probably have a reasonable assumption that COVID played a role. I doubt that it plays a huge role in how he strategizes, uh, unless it's really quite acute. But we just don't have enough information to make a reliable judgment one way or the other. We just don't. We just don't. Um, I wouldn't dismiss it. I know there's going to be some folks being like, ah, that's bullshit. Eh, I think even most people know someone who got kind of fucked up by COVID, right? Whatever your views on it are. I think most of us by now know at least someone who got like, got their ass whooped by it real bad. Like, even if you don't know anyone in your life, like, did you just say what happened to Chris Levin? Like, Chris Levin got wrecked by it. Um, and, you know, I, I have some friends who got just demolished by it. Uh, so, but I had some friends that didn't do shit to him, didn't do shit to me either. So, you know, they're, they're, it, it runs the gamut. I would just say this is a wait and see thing. This is a wait and see thing. I know that's not the great answer, but given how little we know, it, it certainly is possible that it could affect a lot of uh, of the way his internal biology functions. But without more information, we're just we're just playing fuck fuck games. All right. Uh, let's see. We know that Aljo's keys to victory revolve around capitalizing on back exposure. That's part of it. Yes. But how do you see his bottom game? TJ is known for striking, but has leaned on his own offensive wrestling in the past. Would it play a part in the fight to tire out Aljo or to tire Aljo out or be an offensive weapon? It's a great question. I really like this. So if you're TJ Dillashaw, you basically have one of two choices to make. 
Um, you could blend them to a degree, but really you have two choices to make. One is to be defensively sound, stop takedowns, and then try and strike with this guy in an area where I think I, I feel pretty comfortable in saying TJ has better striking. He certainly has more creative striking, and he certainly has more dangerous striking. I think that's very fair, all right? Um, so you think, okay, I'm going to leverage those skills and just not even get into these scrambles with this guy and just let that be what it is, defensively shut him down, force him to strike, and then and then go from there. That's one opportunity. The other opportunity, again, you could blend the two to a degree, but the other sort of strategic line of thinking would be exactly what you're talking about, which is, fuck that, we're not going to wait around and then just try and, like, play prevent defense or something. We're going to take the fight to him and try and take him down. Um, it's a potentially exhausting way to fight, right? Because you can – what are we doing, guys? What are we doing? Take that off the screen. Othello, what are we doing, fella? Hide. Thank you. Jesus. All right. Can I get back to the show, please? Thank you. Um, right. So you can blend the two. You can blend the two. But uh, the other idea would be just wrestle him and make him work from underneath. Get the you saw he's got the he had the good uh, hands class, which by the way I've talked about this a million times. This is actually a you know an illegal um, hold in, in in wrestling in certain parts, certainly from referee's position. Put your hands together. Oh, Tuki's gonna come in. I gotta lock this door. Okay, there we go. Fixed. Now, um, I actually think he might blend the two a little bit. I just feel like here's the problem. If you can get out there and offensively wrestle and put it on him, what is his bottom game like? Well, remember, didn't correct me if I'm wrong. I don't have his resume in front of me. Did he not head an arm choke to Keio Mizugaki from underneath? Ladies and gentlemen, let me explain something to you. This the strength you need to head an arm triangle someone. I think by the way, he was inside of his guard. First of all, if you're on top of someone inside their guard, to head an arm, well, actually, it'd be more like this. It'd be more like this. To head because the hand that goes underneath the arm, excuse me, the arm that goes underneath the head is the one that hand goes flat to the mat, right? Um, to do that inside someone's guard, which Rick Story did to Brian Foster years ago, you have to be Hercules. Hercules. You have to be strong as shit. To then do that underneath is next level squeeze. That's a kind of squeeze you could roll in the gym for 10 years and never encounter. I mean, you have to have a nutso squeeze. The thing I would say is I just don't know how much he wants to play underneath in that space. And honestly, if you lose the scramble, and who's like the quicker athlete of the two? I would argue Aljo's the quicker athlete of the two. If you lose the scramble and then you give it the back exposure, now you've given up the round and potentially the fight. Like there's, there's a cost and a trade-off to it. So what I think he will do is largely, or I would say proportionally, play a little more prevent defense, and then take certain opportunities perhaps along the fence line or other places where whatever strategy they've concocted where he feels more comfortable on escapes or, or entries, I think he will then try and wrestle him a little bit. I think he'll blend a little bit of the two, but the one about prevent defense will be a little bit more pronounced. I think if he just lays back and lets Aljo come to him, that could be a problem. You do want to put pressure on him. Um, but you have to have an answer for the single legs. That's really the whole key to everything. Aljo does have double legs. Aljo's got a lot of different takedowns, I'm sure. Trips, throws, you name it. I'm sure he can do it. But the tape shows quite conclusively that his best work, and from a volume standpoint, what he tends to prefer are single leg entries. He, he'll grab the leg and either try and run the pipe. If that doesn't work, then go to the back. He'll do a double leg. And if not, just hold the leg and then try and throw the guy by. He'll grab the leg 
pull up on it as you escape and then use that to take the back. He'll grab the leg and then run you into the fence. And then from there, he's got an array of takedowns. But the genesis point is the single leg entry. However he gets to it, however he uses it from there, it can vary. Um, that ha If you don't have an answer for that, I don't, I don't really know how you can win. You have to have an answer for that. So like defensive soundness for TJ Dillashaw is critical. It is critical. It is mission critical. Yes, all the other pieces of the offense need to be in place too, of course. But if you can't if you can't solve that riddle, I don't know how you win. All right. Could you discuss the potential implications of Oliveira having corrective eye surgery before this fight against Makachev? I wonder if it might mitigate one of Charles's best attributes, aggression and pressure. I seriously doubt that. Seriously doubt that. He might be, um, I, I think he might have a tougher time getting his offense going. I, okay. I mean, who the fuck knows what's going to happen, right? <laughs> One interpretation could be that he has a little bit of trouble getting going with his offense for the reasons I mentioned earlier, which is that Makachev is defensively very sound, very sound to this point, does not make a lot of mistakes. I know he lost the, you know, the uh, Adriano, Mar was it Adriano Martins or whoever it was? Uh, yes, he and that there he was making clear mistakes of just overrunning position and running into things. Yeah, that was a big problem. Since then, he has massively tightened that up. Striking defense is good. He doesn't he doesn't take a lot of risks. He has good finishing on takedowns. I think his takedown finishing rate is like super high. I don't have it in front of me. I can pull it up here in a minute. But you know, just everything is real clean, technical, somewhat risk averse, but certainly enough to still get the W's right. And then in certain cases, he can just run over these guys. Um, so Charles might have a little bit of time, like cracking that open a little bit, cracking the safe that, that could be one scenario, but that would just have to do with his defensive soundness. You're asking about the eyesight. I, I would imagine, honestly, it might improve his defense a little bit because sometimes he gets hit with shit. A lot of times it's from walking into position, but how much of that was depth perception, right? I would actually say it might make his defense a little bit better. And I don't think it would meaningfully change his offense too much. It's already pretty good. Um, perhaps he could be more accurate as a striker, but he's already pretty accurate, relatively speaking. So, no, I don't think it would change aggression. I think it. I think you might see some, relative to the Gaethje fight, less offensive potency because of what Makachev does, right, where he's just not going to play these games with you. That's one thing. But the eyesight, it's hard for me to see that as any kind of downside trade-off. All right, let's go to this one. Here we go. Uh, as you showed in abundance in your breakdown of Oliveira's tactics, he relies heavily on getting to a clinch, plum, collar tie position to initiate offense. Yes, or to be the bridge between offense. He can do that too. That was crucial in his wins against Dustin and Justin, but it's really hard for me to imagine him having success through that against such a specialist in the space as Makachev. I believe this lowers significantly his path or his paths to victory. What's your opinion on this? It very well could. For you guys who haven't seen the video, there's a big part of it where I spent talking about like how does Charles arrange his offense? What are the things that he does? And the things that I would point to is he has a, a great big push-pull mechanism, true in his striking, true in his wrestling, true in his jiu-jitsu. In terms of his overall game, he attacks transitions. A very true in jiu-jitsu, certainly a little bit true in striking as well. Um, he likes the body lock position is another part of it. And then from guard, this is like, I can't, I can believe that people are not talking about this, but I want you guys to know one of the things that I think is just massively under, under discussed 
related to Charles Oliveira is his leg entanglements, particularly around De La Hiva and then De La Hiva varieties that he uses. He uses De La Hiva guard, again, varieties of De La Hiva because they're not full-on De La Hiva, um, but they're pretty close. Uh, they're certainly in the De La Hiva family. He uses those in ways for leg entanglements better than anyone else maybe in MMA. It's like the key to how he shuts down stuff. So um, that could still be in play without having the collar tie, but the left-handed collar tie is big as well. He'll do it just by grabbing off of, if someone throws a punch and then misses, he'll grab it. He'll throw a hook. If the hook doesn't land, he'll grab it. Um, he'll do a jumping switch kick and then reach and then grab it, and then he'll bring the other right hand behind it or whatever. But that left hand behind the neck, we can use it as a frame sometime, right? He'll frame up inside as well with the left hand. But the left hand collar tie sets up a lot. He can hold it and then dirty box from underneath. He can, it, it does, it's the gateway and the connecting bridge to a lot of different parts of his offense. If you deny him that, that kind of established contact, how else do you do it? A couple of different ways he might get it. He could try a right underhook and a left overhook of the arm, which he did against Gaethje and then jump guard. I don't think that would really get him a winning scenario against Makachev, but there are certain ways that that could play a role. Um, he could shoot a double, which he can do, tends to do it off of someone else's cross rather than nakedly into someone, but then he could baseball slide and pull Makachev in. That's ways he could do it. But I would argue, yes. I mean, as a basic point of answering your question, let's say Makachev denies him initiating grips off the collar tie. Would that affect his game? No doubt about it. Folks, that would affect anybody's game. I mean, let me explain. I, I've said this year after year after year. And for folks who train, they're probably going, mm -hmm, that's right. I guarantee it. And for folks who haven't, not that you're lesser than on something, but you just may not understand this because it's never been explained. It seems maybe not even so obvious. Folks, grips. He who wins the grips wins the fight. Gripping is enormously important. Enormously important. And you could be like, well, that's obvious in jujitsu or wrestling or sambo or something. Who gets the right grips it's true in mma as well now if you're striking on the outside and they're striking on the outside maybe not so much it's not the most relevant thing that you can think of however however there are lots of ways especially if your game is built around it where gripping is central in mma to whatever else you want to do if you can deny someone grips you have denied them a lot it is very hard especially if it's a grip based attack so left collar tie and even if there's strikes that happen after it all the other pieces that follow from that gripping, if you deny him that grip and you deny him any of those entries, either because you grip fight or you roll under the hook or you just don't ever get in those positions, you hand fight yourself and then move away, whatever you do, turn it to a two-on-one like those Russian guys do, whatever you want to do with it, whatever you want to do with it, if you deny him that grip, you are denying a lot, a lot. Yes, I could absolutely see that as being devastating for him. Doesn't mean he can't win. There's going to be a lot of other things he can do. Again, there's so many offensive weapons that he has. But just remember, always remember, more commonly, certainly in wrestling, more commonly, certainly in jiu-jitsu, especially gi jiu-jitsu, where gripping is very, very critical. Uh, grips. Grip. He who wins the gripping battle almost certainly, almost certainly is going to win the contest. Deny them the grips and then establish your own grips and and you you will win you will win it's that important it is it is it is the bedrock of many 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 forms of offense all right another question about his eyesight i don't um someone's asking a little bit a slightly different version 
his love talking about Oliveira for collar tie as a means to close distance, for example. That's not how he closes distance. I mean, it kind of how he establishes a new form of contact from something else. I wouldn't say he like does that to close the distance. He closes the distance otherwise, and then that is the the bridge. Uh, but then once you do that, you're in a different phase of fighting. That's a different way of looking at it. I've heard that he has eyes that have surgically been repaired. That's true. But which I did not know until someone brought it to my attention. So thank you for bringing it up to me. Um, change in style and results. I, I, unlikely. Unlikely. Again, if you see him offensively muted, I don't know how much you can attribute that to improved eyesight versus um, what Makachev will do. I should point this out. I remember years ago, there was a wrestler out of Arizona State. He had one leg. I think his name was Anthony Robles. I think that's what his name was. He had one leg, and he won a national title his senior year. And I remember a lot of folks being like, well, that's bullshit. That's an advantage. And I was always thinking to myself, like, are you out of your fucking mind? Like, you really want to wrestle without a leg? Just one leg, you know? Um, but the reality is it's, it's complicated. The basic idea would be as a... You know, because obviously if you lack a leg, someone's like, well, it's hard for me to get a single on you. I can I can get one on the other one. But if you down block and hide it, I don't have another one to switch off to. Right. It, it, they can get their level lower. It's a lot of ways in which it actually gives them. Some guys are saying give them an advantage. What you can argue is that there might be certain scenarios where missing a leg for a wrestling match. If, if you have a lot of other things going well for you, could could there are some ways that could be advantageous, certain circumstances where that could be advantageous. But as a general rule and as a sort of a net balance, is it more advantageous or more disadvantageous? Surely you would argue it is more disadvantageous while recognizing there could be some limited, albeit important circumstances, where it provides some benefit. But it's not overall beneficial. I would look at his lack of, up until now, corrected eyesight as something along those lines. Is it possible that because he lacked proper vision, he maybe had slightly more aggression or attacked in certain ways that actually brought his offense to life that, um, you know, at once it's corrected, he might not do as much as possible. But I would imagine for all the downsides that also limited him, a lot of those are taken away. So, like, are there possible a couple of ways in which it's a, you know, uh, a, a positive in those circumstances? Sure. But overall, it's an it's corrective eyesight is a net benefit. That's, I think that's the way I would look at it. All right. We've seen O'Malley have durability issues in the past. So my question is, what part do you think might play in his fight with Jan? As he definitely does not have deficiencies in that area. Um, also, I would like to hear your thoughts about durability as they pertain to fighting and fighters in general. What aspects play into failure and success? Is it something that can be improved upon, or are you simply born with it? Finally, can do fighters plan around specific deficiencies in durability? Yeah, of course. And implement defensive or offensive solutions to their games. Yes. Um, all right. What do I think he might do? Well, the first part is I don't know that O'Malley thinks he has durability issues. I think he finds that to be a, a bullshit talking point. Right? So the first thing is how do you correct for something strategically if you don't think it exists? That'd be the first thing I'd say, right? That said, what did you notice in the Munoz fight? Everyone was like, oh, he's leg kicking him. He's leg kicking him. He was. O'Malley was checking a lot of those and getting out of the way of a lot of those. Charles Oliveira did the same thing against Gaethje. He would push forward into him and then pull the back leg up 
or raise it out so that he would miss. It would turn Gaethje. Then he could get outside of his elbows and he could create some kind of gripping sequence from there. But um, I don't think that O'Malley thinks that he has durability issues. I think he thinks that everyone else is kind of out of their mind. We shall see a little bit more on Saturday. But I think he also believes that fighters are going to fight like that, so he has to have an answer so they don't just, you know, they can't just tee off on him. And you saw that with the Munoz fight where he was ready to check. He was, you know, ready to do other things. Now, the difference is that Munoz was kind of aggressive with it from the start, and Munoz wasn't really setting it up. He was just, like, running and then throwing. He wasn't, like, you know, high and low and then throwing something and then doing something else. He wasn't That wasn't really part of what he was doing. And so as a consequence, um, O'Malley was able to check them a little bit easier. Um I think that he probably is cognizant of the guys. And also, just as a general rule, like O'Malley is a mover and a fainter. How do you slow a guy down like that? Body work and leg work, big time. I mean, you can discipline them with headshots, but in general, body work and leg work, right? Just laying into him. He has to know that's going to be happening no matter what. So it tends to line up with what he already wants or what he already knows he has to account for. But honestly, like just to the question you're asking, Oh, we've seen he has durability issues. You, we think he does. I don't buy that he thinks he does, at all. Um, we shall see. We shall see. All right, Luke. With Dana confirming that Volk will indeed get the next title shot at lightweight versus Saturday's winner, it got me wondering about Max. Should Volk win the one fifty-five pound belt? Do you think Max's next move? Or what do you think Max's next move would or should be? I always thought it um, a given that he'd move up because of his size. But if Volk were the 155 champ as well, does Max still pursue Peru's, you wrote, a title run there, having already lost to him three times? And can he even continue to make 145 long enough to peruse, you mean pursue, a title run at featherweight were Volk to vacate? Yeah, here's the other part too. If Volk finds himself the winner at 155, he's going to drop the title, right? How the hell does he hold on to that thing? I don't see how that's possible. I mean, I guess I suppose he could. Uh, he might. But, like, we all know the reality of the 145 belts, what I'm talking about. Like, dude, you can't keep and maintain a schedule of fighting contenders holding two UFC belts at once unless one of them is a quasi-weight class at 145 for the women's featherweight division. It's not possible. Like, one of them has to get given up. So which one's he going to give up? Is he going to give up the 145-pound belt? Is he going to give up the 155-pound belt if he ends up getting both? He'll give up, I don't know. He'll give up one of them. I don't, I don't fucking know what Max is going to do, to be honest with you. I, too, thought he should have gone up to 155, but it really isn't even about Max. Uh, excuse me. It's not even about Volk up there. Dude, Max is, like, insanely talented. Max, is, Max taught me a lot about MMA. I mean that quite sincerely. Um, his two back-to-back -back wins where he finished Jose Aldo is – I mean, just magnificent, truly. I mean that word seriously, magnificent, what he was able to pull off. I think he's got incredibly modular striking. Um, I just I hold him in very high regard, but he's in a real tough place. He's only 30, but he's taken a lot of damage, which I don't think he fully accepts as true, but that's my opinion. Um, he still has a lot of ability. So those high level. I mean, this is the problem. Look what he did to Calvin Cater, you know? And then look what Volk did to him. It's like, oof. Uh, but let's say Volk didn't exist and for one, one reason or another wanted to drop the belt at 145 and then go to 155. Like you saw what happened against Dustin Poirier. He went the distance with him, but he was clearly outmatched physically. Now, Dustin's going to outmatch a lot of guys on 155 physically. But, you know, 
I think that there he's in a weird spot where he's got this big. I mean, he would have to put on weight like in a real serious way at 155. I would want to see that. Like if he's going to go to 155, he would have to bulk up a little bit because he's got a frame where it's just not enough heft there um, to, I think, deal with some of the bigger strength and power guys in that lightweight division, punching power, wrestling, and the like. Um, he seems better suited at 145 for that if you want to keep doing it, but I don't really know what he wants to do. I talked to his manager a while ago, and I was just asking how he was doing, and uh, they told me he was chilling. You know, he was enjoying time with his family um, and, uh, you know, thinking about his next step. You know, my understanding is he intends to fight again, so we'll see how that looks. Um, but it's it's tough because you got the Volk issue. That's one. And then you've got the durability issue, which, which he is durable. But, I mean, I mean, he's taking a lot of damage. And then you have the issue of, like, 145, excuse me, 155, from what we've seen, doesn't look like that great of a fit either asterisk we'll see what it looks like if he can bulk up but my understanding is he intends to fight again that's my understanding so i i it's it's a tough spot for him it's a real tough spot no doubt about it um people asking about yuri develop a style that would add longevity to his career and fight at the top 10 level i think we went over this already uh someone's asking um health and weight loss going uh better uh a mix really um i'm basically at where i was when i stopped using i stopped say what happened was i was in a caloric deficit for a really long time and it burned me out i was in a caloric deficit for like a year you know you shouldn't do that you should do it i I learned this after the fact you should do it for like at most 12 weeks and then stop and then go back to it and then stop and go back to it so you don't get burned out i didn't i just kept going and it kind of burned me out so now what i'm doing is just you know i'm basically i am certainly monitoring what i eat and whatnot but um but i got a kettlebell uh like training program and i've been having a ton of fun with that so i've been really doing that um shouts you know i'll I'll give a a shout out here you all know titan fitness i know some people don't like their equipment some people do they had their back extension machine on sale for like a buck 60 or like a buck 70 and i bought it and i set it up in my house and i and i use it now like three times a week dude that thing is a lifesaver oh man it's a lifesaver um i still do deadlifts with my hd bar from kabuki strength but i don't do barbell deadlifts right now and i haven't for a while i've kind of given them up uh because dude you have to eat a lot and you gotta like lift heavy and like it's you know i don't know man everyone's different but like if you're in a caloric deficit deadlifting ain't as fun (laughs) it ain't as fun um not for me so uh, I've been doing other stuff to get around it, but like they do the kettlebells. People ask like, what's a cheap way to get like good fitness? Dude, find, get a couple of kettlebells, get some resistance bands, get a cheap program. You can find free ones online. You can pay for one too. Dude, that shit will wear you out, especially if you're like a guy getting a little bit older and you're working on more mobility and balance and core strength and stuff. It's phenomenal. So that part's been great, but like, where's my weight? It's exactly where it was when I left off. More, I mean, a pound up, pound down, it will fluctuate week to week, but it's basically where it was when I left off. I, I, I'm not done, but it was, I, I, you know, I need to stop being a bitch about it, basically. But, um, don't do what I did. Don't be in a caloric deficit for a really long time. Take breaks, and then get back to it, because otherwise, it'll fuck up your development. All right. Uh, here's an interesting one. Very nice compliment. Thank you, Andrew. And then he asks, my question is simple. Is Olivera versus Makachev the Tony versus Habib 
we never got. You're like the third person to ask me that. Kinda, kinda. I mean, Islam is like a lighter version, not the weight class, but like there's a certain kind of pace and viciousness to Habib's game. Islam is a slightly more defensively inward game relative to that. And, you know, Tony was kind of crazy and all over the place, but it was very offensively dynamic. Oliveira is much more strategic and structured, but does have just this vast array of offensive skills. In terms of offensive overall, like, um, technical maturity, like how good they are in that particular dimension, offensively, Charles Oliveira is one of the best I've ever seen in all of MMA. Like, if you're that good at wrestling, that good at jiu-jitsu, that good at the transitions, that good at striking, that good at clinch fighting, he's so good. I know Rogan kind of goes on and on about, like, how technical he is, which can be true as well, but it's more than that. He's just offensively dynamic, attacking transitions all the time, doing that daily heave guard, weaving in and out with his legs. It's just incredible what he can do. Truly incredible. Ooh, I love this question. All right. All right. How do you see the clinch interactions between Oliveira and Makachev working out? That might be the most important area of the fight, in my opinion. It almost certainly will be. Almost certainly. You mentioned how important the left-hand collar tie is to Oliveira's game. Knees are a great weapon of his and can apply great attritional damage. True, he did it to Gaethje a lot. It also enables his dirty boxing. However... Makachev has great clinch takedowns where he won't be threatened by neck attacks. Uh, he could be threatened by neck attacks, but I, I know what you mean. Yeah, honestly, listen, here's one scenario. They are on the feet, and Makachev eats a right hand and gets slept, and then that's the whole fight, right? So this, this would make what I'm about to say null and void. But here's the point I want to raise. In all likelihood... The clinch is where this fight will be won and lost in all likelihood. Now, of course, it could finish with Oliveira on Makachev's back. It could finish with Makachev pounding him out from some kind of control position. That's true. But in terms of who can meaningfully dictate the offensive terms, I have a feeling it will run through the clinch for the reasons that you state. For Oliveira, by the way, he has good takedowns in the body lock as well. You saw against... Um, Dustin Poirier, he had a sacrifice throw from the, from the clinch. That started from the clinch. It's not like he doesn't have takedowns there either, but I would probably, I think most people would say who's got better clinch takedowns? Probably going to be Makachev. I think it's, that's not unreasonable. Um, yeah, if you're Oliveira, you have to have an answer for that. You have to have an answer. You have to have some kind of ability to either find that space and negate what he wants to do or just you have to have some kind of um, answer around it because if he just moves into that clinch space and thinks I'm just going to be as offensively dynamic as I normally am, where guys are always trying to like be careful about him overrunning them, I think he's going to get into trouble. Makachev is, if you give him a body lock takedown, he's going to find, um, he'll be trouble. Really, really, they, it will come down to this. I, I, I firmly believe that the clinch will decide how easily Makachev can get into it, what he can get from it, how easily Oliveira can maintain offense from there. What offense is available to him outside of it, right? Because if you're Makachev, you don't want to play the striking game with him. You want to be on the outside for most of it, and then you want to be all the way inside, and then you can control him from the takedown to get to his back or whatever you want to do, and then you can arrive at your control position on the ground, right? Capture wrists, whatever you need to do. Like, that would be the best way to do it. So it's going to be a key part, I think, of what Makachev wants to do 
how does Oliveira respond? We shall see. We shall see. Uh, okay. All right, look, if you had to pick between the following, uh, who would you pick? A fighter who is excellent at constructing and following a game plan to a T and accurately scouts the opponent beforehand but is not very good at adapting within the course of a fight, or would you prefer a fighter who is excellent at adapting to an opponents in the middle of the fight but has poor preparation? Jesus. <clears throat> Obviously, you'd prefer someone who can do both. Um, if I had to choose between those two options, I would pick the first one who can, who scouts and follows the game plan to a T. Obviously, if you can't adapt in the middle of the fight, you probably won't be a champion. Just, it's going to be very hard to become a champion in this organization or any top level one. If you can't make adjustments in the middle of a fight, you know, the very best ones, your Mayweathers, right? Your Volkanovskis, you know, many others, um, Bud Crawford, Errol Spence. Jerron Ennis, I'm picking a bunch of boxers, but um, you get the idea, like, that ability is, is what separates the very good from the elite, basically. However, you can get very good without that skill. You can get very good. But if you just have poor prep, you're going to lose to a lot of people you shouldn't. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, can be, you can be the smartest guy in the world, but if you didn't study for the test, like, how much you can tap dance won't get you very far. It would be it's it's almost always almost always going to be better to prepare for um to be prepared. There's going to be very few circumstances where I say, "Yeah, you don't need to be prepared for this one." That's just a rule in life, right? Like who wants to go into like a difficult challenge unprepared? You got to be prepared. But the 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 thing that separates the truly top guys from the very 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 highly admirable ones in-game adaptation, in-fight adaptation. That is that is very difficult to do, both in terms of making the strategic read and then having access to those things available to you to then switch them up that way. So you have to be super well-rounded. You have to be super, like, it, it, that's a case where you have to be very rational, like what's working, what's not, and then be able to make an adjustment accordingly. Not easy to do. Very, very, very difficult to do. And that's true in all of sports as well, right? Uh, let's see. Question about Vulcan Goat. I'm not really going to get into that. Uh, okay, here's a good one. Uh, hi, Luke. Heard George Hardwick from Cage Warriors talking about pummeling underhooks in clinch positions. When would it be beneficial to pummel a deep or shallow underhook? Um, it's a bit of a weird question. So there are plenty of circumstances where you want a shallow underhook there are almost no circumstance where you want a lazy underhook. And I want to make sure we understand the difference. Typically, when you want an underhook, and there's different ways it's taught, a lot of guys will teach you to go flat to the back on high. By the way, your elbow is always going to want to be up. You want to jack up their elbow as high as possible, right? Um, a lot of guys will go under and then cup the shoulder. I've seen a gun where they come and cup the back of the neck through the underhook, right? So you have a nice, high, deep underhook, and you can pull with that. You can do all kinds of stuff with that. You can throw them with that. You name it. That's a nice, deep underhook from which you can work. And you can work same side underhook. You can work opposite side underhook. You name it, right? That's a good, deep underhook. Elevated. Either uh, The way it was shown to me, which I think works best for me, is like cupping the shoulder, maybe the trap even a little bit. But, but you can't have your elbow down. If I have a deep underhook, but 
I have my elbow down, I don't have shit. You got to be jacking their elbow into the sky. I have seen other ways that a shallow underhook is taught. So, for example, where I've seen a guy who'll bury himself like in a Greco position. He's got this arm controlled, bicep control, and he's got an underhook usually flat to the back. And then he'll pull his own elbow inside. And so the underhook, it's he's completely on top of his guy. They're both standing, but I mean, he's completely clinched and controlling. And from there, you can do all kinds of stuff. You don't have a super deep underhook from that point. It's an intentionally pulled back underhook in your high and tight, right, in here, right, all of this. What you don't want is what the kind of thing I'm talking about where you have an underhook, you're not far high enough, and your elbow is kind of lazily hanging. You're going to get completely fucked up doing that. Somebody who knows what they're doing is going gonna, is gonna to destroy your day. Um, so when you say shallow underhook, there can be plenty of uses for it. When you talk about a deep underhook, it's the, the very best kind, typically, typically, depending on what you want to do, obviously. More commonly, the deep underhook is going to be better, depending on what the scenario is, where your head position, the same side, opposite side. Are you trying to turn them? Do you have control of the far side of wrist? Whatever. Um, but what you don't want ever is, I mean, there could be some circumstance that I'm not aware of, but in general, you don't want a lazy underhook. Deep is not really the issue. Deep and up cupping the shoulder i wish i had like a grappling dummy i could show but if this if i it doesn't matter how deep i am here if i'm down i gotta be up i gotta be jacking their elbow up i want to i want to create all that space in there and i want to i want to see it and use it to turn them you, you know you name it so so um just keep in mind people sometimes use shallow for lazy like, oh, I just didn't really fire the underhook very far. I'm just kind of cupping the back of the shoulder or hanging off the side of the, the deltoid or something or just not really, you know, not a really forceful underhook. That Sometimes they'll call that shallow. But there can be other kinds of shallow underhooks that are used to pull that can be quite strategic. So just keep that in mind. Again, question about the eyesight of Oliveira. Ah, here we go. Love this question. So glad you asked it. Very good. Here we go. Luke, I've heard you use the strike to get hit differential as a means of telling how good a fighter is. Not quite. Not quite. I heard over the weekend a similar ratio used for quarterbacks in the NFL. You mean the QBR? I'm not sure what you're referring to. Uh, where did you come up with using this stat for fighters? So far, you are the only one in fighting sport I hear referring to it. Great question. Comes from Fight Metric, which is also known as 3027. Now, I want to be Clear up something right away. What I'm talking about is strikes landed per minute minus strikes absorbed per minute. Perfect example. Someone lands four strikes a minute and they absorb three strikes a minute. Their striking differential is a positive one. That is typically a good thing. You don't really want to get hit three times or more per minute. That's actually, it's, it's not bad. It's not bad, but it's not great either. It's semi-average, but you get the idea in that case. It'd be... Strikes landed per minute minus strikes absorbed per minute. Where do you have that? Now, here's the reality. It's always going to be better to have a positive differential. No, okay. In general, it's better to have a positive differential. I have seen very good fighters who have negative differentials. So let's look at a case like this to help us understand this. Show you an example. And then I want to tell you, I can't believe these commentators don't like stats. It just drives me up the wall. So here's a great example. Let me blow this up so you can see it. All right. Take a look at this for me, will you? Here we go. 
Here are the stats for Justin Gaethje. Strikes landed per minute, 7.46. Okay? Strikes absorbed per minute, 7.85. He has a negative differential. Not by much, by 0.4, basically 0.39. But you, you see there, case here, it's, it's a negative differential. Now, how would that contrast with someone? Let's take a look at someone like, let's say... Islam Makachev, right? What is are his numbers like? All right. By the way, seven strikes landed per minute is like stupid high. That's like really, really high. Okay. Now let's look at Makachev. Strikes landed per minute, 2.27. Strikes absorbed per minute, 0.84. So he has a positive differential by a significant margin. Just because Makachev has a positive striking differential and Gaethje has a negative striking differential. Am I telling you, A, that Makachev is a better fighter than Justin Gaethje? Nope, it's not what I'm telling you. Or B, am I telling you that he's even a better striker? That's not what I'm telling you. What this speaks to is you always have to use these stats in conjunction with what the tape shows and what, what some of the other numbers show and what some of the other numbers show from their opponent. What it more commonly shows is really what is their tolerance for and how much damage do they take. It's a better way to look at it than, you know, striking or fighting prowess more generally. It's a question of um, they can be really good, but they tend to take a lot of damage along the way. That will be very important, let's say, as they get into their mid to late 30s. That would be important against a guy who's got very good, uh, you know, who's who, who lands, like let's say, eight strikes a minute or whatever. You want to look at it in the context of where they are, what they're up against, what it showed in the last fight, what it means about any particular matchup. That's the sort of benefit of, st of statistics in MMA. It's the composite picture of everything. I bring it up as a shorthand way to kind of understand not just how good someone's defense is, which I think, you know, in the case of Makachev, I mean, look at his overall numbers. Takedown accuracy, 65%. That's not a defensive number. Striking defense, nearly 70%. Takedown defense, nearly 90%. I mean, do his, you know, striking accuracy is fairly above average is what I would say, 57%. Like his defensive numbers are very, very good. He does not have a striking style that either incorporates or really allows for damage. He just doesn't do it. He Obviously, he's got the one fight in his record, but we're talking about since then. He doesn't really engage in kind of the risky behavior that lets him do that. He is hard to hit, right? He doesn't accept damage. By contrast... You can look at Justin Gaethje's style, and it tells you that he is more than willing to accept enormous amounts of damage. How does that factor into his next fight? How does that factor into his fight style? By the way, it should also be noted, this number has come way down. When I first started looking at Gaethje's numbers, they were in the 11 range of strikes absorbed per minute. 11. I mean, he was taking absurd amounts of damage. Now he's got it much more even. It's still crazy high at 7.85, but it's certainly in a much better place than it once was. These stats don't tell you this guy's number one, this guy's number two, this guy's number three. They help paint a larger picture of what you're looking for as a means to make some uh, analytical assessments. That's what they're there for. That's what, at least in this particular case, that's what they're there for, right? Again, you can have 100% takedown defense. Who have you fought? You know, who have you fought? And you can have a 50% takedown defensive rate. Who have you fought? All of these things, who are you going to fight next? Oh, this this person's got a, you know, 
50% takedown. You could have well, Mackenzie Dern got a 9% takedown defensive rate, but the person she's going up against, let's just say, I'll, I'll invent something, wants to match her jujitsu. Like, it doesn't even matter at that point, you know? They're going to end up on the mat one way or the other. Who gives a fuck, right? So it's not really relevant there. They're just going to have a striking contest, and Mackenzie's not even going to try and take her down. It doesn't even become relevant anymore. It doesn't mean anything in that particular case. We're always talking about composite pictures of which this helps set a little bit more of a, of a framing but it's more related to acceptance or tolerance around damage and a striking style that either invites it or doesn't and what that means for the next particular fight and how long they can do this kind of thing. That's the other part as well. All right. Let's keep going here, shall we? Uh, let's see. Ben has a nice thing to say about my video on Oliveira. I had a conversation with Brendan Dorman, had me fascinated by the clinch battle in this fight. Brendan explained that he sees Oliveira initiate clinches for quick bursts of offense, while Islam uses it to chain wrestle and or settle into safer control positions. That's basically true, yes. Do you think Charles should avoid clinching with Islam, uh, or should he be looking to impose his offense from every possible position? I think he should avoid it certainly at first. Certainly at first, right? Um I would not overrun. He tends to just walk into range, by the way, which can be a problem. I, if I was advising Oliveira, and certainly they're not asking me for my opinion, but such that I have one, I would I would be a little bit. I would want to do as much striking as possible on the feet, right? I would want to do that, um, kicking Islam's legs, fucking him up, right, that kind of a thing, and then slowly play with that. If you get taken down, try to go to guard or 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 whatever you can get De La Hiva from and make him work, that kind of a thing. That's where you kind of want to go, but um, I would not invite that space early. I would make sure I was like sweatier. He was slowed down. I'd done some damage to him and then begin to play with some of those positions a little bit. Or you could do it very quickly. Like if you want to do it for a collar tie for then just a punch. And if you're far enough away, you can frame out and go. You can do that too. But I mean like, you know, where you have an underhook head on the inside or head on the opposite side, controlling far side arm. And now we're here. I would avoid those scenarios early. Um, kind of been over some of these. All right, here we go. Here's a good one. Luke, if you had to make one underdog pick on the top six fights on this card, so Maine and then Brady Bilal, who would it be? Personally, for me, it's Dillashaw. Watch Dan Hardy's War Room where he discussed Aljo's lateral movement leading into TJ's kicks. And I'm thinking Dillashaw is one of the tougher matchups for Aljo. That's an interesting idea as well. Um... Yeah, that could certainly play a role. Sure. Let me look at, before I can answer that though, let me look at the odds if I can here, because that will give me a better indication of really underdog pick. And you're asking just underdog or not underdog. You're not asking, you know, more thoroughly than that. Let's see. So we've got underdog with Oliveira. I mean, that's a pretty decent pick. You've got Jan and O'Malley. I probably wouldn't take the O'Malley one. Dariush. Maybe that one's a decent one. Chukagan, where is the one for? Here we go. They've got Dillashaw as a very slight underdog. Hmm. Sure, sure as not, it would not be Malcolm Gordon, but one never knows, right? Um, oof. The thing for me with Dillashaw is he's he's relatively old, 37 years of age. Going to be 38 in February, I think, something like that. That's a long time, man. That's old for the weight class. Um, 
And yes, he could run into those things as well. That's true. It's true. Um, but I th- he's good at catching kicks. And then if he can catch one, by the way, TJ gets his kicks caught a lot. If he can catch him and then he can run that down, you're just giving him the single leg. So like you have to be careful with that. No, I probably would. Listen, that's a very, the odds are fair. That's a very, very close fight. But if I had to pick like an upset on this one, I'd probably go with Oliveira. Again, in terms of the odds, I'd probably go Oliveira over Makachev, to be honest with you. It's a fair question. Like, but I, I tend to, th- I'm a little, I'll say this, I'm slightly more confident in Al Jermaine's ability to win than I am um, Makachev, even, no matter what the odds say. Let's see, let's see. I get asked this, uh, oh, here, question. Would you ever debate Faraz on the case of PEDs and combat sports? We've, we've talked about it on the air a number of times. I've had them on. We've had, like, not debates in that kind of way, but, like, gone back and forth on the issue on my radio show, like, a number of times. I mean, I suppose I would. I like I like Faraz a lot. Like, we disagree on this issue, obviously, but I I think the world of Faraz, I think he's great. Um, sure, or something, but we've kind of already done it, you know. Uh, this one's interesting. After watching your Oliveira breakdown, I was wondering, have you ever been asked privately to break down an opponent by a fighter or their coaches? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Um, I have. Not many times. That doesn't happen frequently. But it's definitely happened um, more than once, for sure. And uh, no, the answer is no, I don't do that. Um, if a guy wanted me, I've had a guy reach out and then ask me to break down film on him. Like, this person was like, hey, look at my film. What do you see with me? I've had that. I would do that. I would do that. But, you know, I've always said this, and I really maintain this. Like, if I'm seeing this stuff, it would be very surprising to me if the other coaches didn't. And honestly, I'm going to just say this to any MMA fighter who sees this. If I see stuff your coach doesn't, you might need a new coach. <laughs> like, there's no good reason why someone like me should be able to point out stuff and then the coach can't. Like, you know, make your own decisions about your life, but if a jabroni like me can spot it and your coach doesn't, you may not be in the right spot. Um, let's see. Oh, here's a good one. Yo, Luke, I worked at my school paper covering sports for a while. I was wondering how I can break into MMA journalism now that I have. First of all, MMA journalism doesn't really exist. Can we just say that out loud? We just say that out loud. It doesn't really exist. MMA media exists. I'm a member of the MMA media. I, people need to stop calling themselves journalists. They don't do any journalism. You know, journalism, is it barely existed 10 or 15 years ago. It almost doesn't exist at all now. There's plenty of MMA media. If you want to get into MMA so that, like, as an MMA media person, you are acting as a watchdog on the sport, you know, I think you can do some of that and maintain a job, but the reality is you'll get drummed out. Like the the audience doesn't want it, the power brokers don't want it, the people that you think might want it, like your parent companies or whatever, or investors, they don't seem to give a shit. Like no one's like when was the last I mean, okay, the last time I saw something on like the on on MMA managers was from Josh Grossman at the Athletic. And since then you haven't seen anything. You really mean to tell me like this is the most that can be said about MMA? Why why don't you okay? Why don't you ever see anything on MMA managers, right? It's because they're the gatekeepers for interviews for the vast majority of people. So sometimes guys have like direct relationships with a fighter. I've 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 almost exclusively developed relationships with fighters that way. 
um, for that very reason. Like, there's a lot of like big time managers. I don't, I don't think I've said two words to ever because they're just gatekeepers. Why the fuck do I want to involve this guy for anything that I want to do? There, it's a waste of my time. Some guys I have a good relationship with. I have a good relationship with like Danny, Danny Rube. He's a good guy. I like him a lot. There's some other ones as well. Um, you know, but in general, like you don't see reporting on that because it's bad for business. The major companies that hire MMA websites and stuff like that, like what they're hiring you for, I get latitude to say what I want, but the reality is most of these people are hired to just go to press conferences, bring a camera, stick a microphone in a guy's face, ask him questions that are not really about the real world, and then just put up stuff on social to get hits. That's what it's for. It's not really journalism in any kind of meaningful sense. So if you want to do journalism, I would go do something else. I would not do this. You, 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 you'll get drummed out pretty quickly. Um, if you want to do media and then like, you know, persona opinion, talking head shit like I do, that is available to you. Sure, you can do something like that. But otherwise, you're wasting your fucking time. MMA journalism almost doesn't exist at all. A little bit, a little bit here or there. Kareem Zidane does some stuff. Um, you, and by the way, you can do it like an individual act of journalism. If there's like, I'll give you an example. If there is, uh, if you're watching, I'm going to make something up police misconduct and you get your phone out and you film it and then you and you live stream it and the world can see it you know this is an act of journalism you may not be a journalist you may not think you're doing journalism but that can be an act of it so anyone can do an act of journalism that's actually a good thing but as a practice are people in mma media holding the people in power to account who the fuck would argue that how would you ever make that argument how would you ever make that argument you couldn't make that argument if you tried on this occasion or that occasion, they'll hold the line, right? At certain times, they'll hold the line. On fighter pay, they've actually been pretty good about holding the line. That part is true. But, like, in general, day-to-day, it's that job doesn't exist. It doesn't exist, you know. Keep that in mind. More questions about ice. Okay, last one, then we'll go to the paid ones. Let's see. Luke, lift... Lifting question. I'm 21 years old and I've been lifting weights for a long time. Doubt that, but never got into deadlifting. About a year ago, I did a bunch of research on deadlifting and began doing it regularly. For a while, it was fine, but I eventually developed significant pain in my sciatic nerve. Yeah, you got to stop. That's been lingering for months and I haven't been able to lift. Curious if you know anyone else who's had similar problems. I've never had problems deadlifting. I know you're not a doctor, but I respect your opinion on deadlifting. So let me just be very clear. I have never had a problem on deadlifting ever, ever. I mean, it had good days and bad days, you know, a couple tweaks or something, but like, very minimally and in the, again in the to, in the everyone's favorite word apparently in the totality of it um it's been nothing but therapeutic for me and strengthening I, i've never had a problem with it if you're having sciatic pain you need to go see a medical professional period stop all this bullshit go right now don't wait another instant if you're 21 especially you need to you need to develop good habits now guarantee there you're doing something wrong mechanically just there's just no doubt in my mind or you're load progressing in the wrong way something you're doing something if you're getting pain that's your body's way of telling you you're doing some shit wrong. Deadlifting should not be painful for the vast majority of people, including elderly and other forms of infirmities or whatever. Um, you should be fine. So if you're having those kinds of problems, you need to go talk to a medical professional immediately. And then and then you need to get a coach to show you how to deadlift because you're doing it wrong. I'm not trying to be difficult. I, I mean this for your benefit. It should not be happening this way. Okay? All right. Let's get to your comments. And uh, you paid questions, and then we will call it a day here. All right, let's see what you got. First things up from Denver Tate. Thanks, Denver. For next, from this fella, 
When someone's had a full camp against Islam, matches were competitive. E.g. Moises took him down, had him give the back. 280, not going to be a walkthrough. Yeah. I'd be surprised if someone goes in there and just puts it on the other guy. It's certainly possible. Certainly possible. But I find that to be on the more unlikely side. Any advice for learning how to edit video on your own? Best software for Apple products would be Final Cut Pro. And uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I do have something for you. Hold on. Um, here we go. I am going to show you something. Hold on. I You can use this. You can use something. Uh, I'll give you another. Hold on. Okay, here we go. I'm going to show you this. So this is a site called Udemy, or I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's U-D-E-M-Y.com. There's other ones like Skillshare. You can go in here and log in and you can take classes. So for example, let's look up Final Cut Pro, right? Pro X, you can even use that. Final Cut Pro. Here's all these classes you can take for like 20, 20 bucks. 18 bucks that you can take highest rated bestseller. So for 15 bucks, you can take a long ass course. Here's one, right? Here's one 15 bucks. How long does it last Four, almost four hours of on demand video? You can get, you can see the reviews and you can just teach yourself how to do it. This is what I did. Now I'm not certainly an expert at it. I'm, I've got a long way to go. You can, again, Skillshare is another one of these. You, all of these places do the internet is you are only limited by your imagination and time and work ethic. That's it. You can go and teach yourself. So Final Cut, if you're going to use Apple products, Final Cut Pro, there's iMovie, but you really should get good at Final Cut Pro. And um, dude, just go teach yourself or have someone teach you. Obviously, YouTube is filled with people who've got all kinds of stuff, who've got you know free Lutzes and everything else you can use. Um, that's the way to do it. All right. Chris Tate. Thank you, Chris Tate. All right. There is an old saying in boxing that punchers are born, not made. How does Wilder generate so much power? It's just genetic. Can a fighter develop that kind of power? You can work on things to develop your power, but he's born with that. He is just born with uh, Herculean power. I don't know how else to say it. He is he is very much just a natural gift. Personal big four of death metal. Mine is death, bolt thrower, obituary, and cannibal corpse. I don't know if I have a top four. Um, it would be cannibal corpse, dying fetus, maybe six feet under. That's probably it. Uh, didn't know you were so close to DuPont Circle. Also, the odds favor Islam, but six out of seven fighters seem to favor Oliveira on polls. Um, I don't know what to make of the fighter saying that. I don't know. I don't really understand that either. But it's because he's so good and so offensive, you know, like in a direct way. The criticism of Volk moving up, moving up to 155 to fight for the belt seems unfair due to what he's done at 145. E.g., uh, Cejudo and Connor did less. In certain respects, yes. Um, but it does fuck up divisions. Like, this is what I mean. He's going to have to drop one of them belts. And I don't really, his work is not really done at 145. So, like, you're just going to give that up. It's a weird thing. Like, he wants to become a champ champ because you can get, you know, history in the sport by doing that. But, it does mess up things. The criticisms are not altogether unfair. Uh, let's see. Moises and Armand were picked off by Islam when they were green. Armand, Saryukian, yes. Moises, no. 
Armin was short notice too. How do you see those rematches going with these guys? I still think Makachev would win. <laughs> Me for prime minister of the UK. I get bounced in a day. I don't want that job. Fuck that. What do you make of Jan pushing O'Malley? Nothing. I don't make shit about it. It doesn't mean anything. Does the outcome of Jan versus Sanhagen tell us anything about how the fight with Jan versus O'Malley is likely to go? Not necessarily because Sanhagen is a certain kind of striker. I think O'Malley hits a little bit harder and is a little bit more, um, a little rangier. Uh, and the other part is Sanhagen played will play um, from turtle or from bottom position in ways I don't think O'Malley will. So there are some similarities about stance switch, angles, in and out, that kind of movement, yes. But there are some meaningful differences. Again, if Jan is smart, I think a big part of his game is going to be wrestling, or at least a, a key portion anyway. And they just have very different responses to that, I think. Uh, here's five bucks for hammering BC on saying irregardless yesterday on MK when he means regardless. Up there, my pet peeves with escape. And especially my favorite is the one who the people who can't conjugate verbs like, oh, he used to go to the restaurant and they'll spell it U.S.E. No, no, no. U.S.E.D. He used to go. He didn't use to go. Or people be like, oh, he's hype. No, he's hyped. H.Y.P.E.D. Conjugate people, please. David Tomasi, want to show the support. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you very much. Here from Rain Entertainment. My friend pointed out narrative similarities between two Tyson Evander, Evader, you wrote, fights, and the two, three Connor Dustin fights. Are there any that come to mind for you? I saw even on the recent um, Embedded, they were saying that, like, the narrative of Habib being undeserving before he got the crown is right up there with what Islam is experiencing, which is, there's some truth to that, actually. Um, they're not entirely the same there's there are some differences as well but like i definitely remember people like well habib hasn't beaten anybody yet and i was like what right but did you see how he was beating them beating the fuck out of them mr c-section forehead came out admitting to using habib's twitter <laughs> talking about ali to instigate amongst fighters and managers with gon's manager saying ali threatened his life does this happen more often than not well he didn't say he threatened his life he said he didn't feel safe that's or no I don't know how much longer I'll be alive. I don't know if he threatened his life specifically. Uh, does this happen more often than not? It certainly does with Ali. I don't know if it happens with other managers. I tend to think not. I think it's fairly rare, but probably not exclusive to Dominance MMA. I always listen to the live chats after the fact, and today I have the opportunity to listen in real time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Uh, very much appreciated. How to from Michael Jardine, how bad does BC want Bilal Muhammad to win on Saturday so that he doesn't have to get tattooed? Do you folks know this story? I'll make it very quick. We had Sean Brady on uh, Room Service Diaries, the very first or second one we had, actually. I think Glover was the first. And we had a bet, not a bet, but an agreement. An agreement. If Sean O'Malley, what am I saying? If Sean Brady beats Bilal Muhammad at UFC 280, we have to go to BC and I, Philly, and get tattooed with him. Now, this is, this is, a, this is a delight for me. I'd be... I, I couldn't wait to do it, right? I mean, two thumbs up, all in, great. Uh, for BC, I, I, and everyone's like, we know BC's going to welch. He might, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. But I bet he does want Bilal to win just so he doesn't have to deal with that. For me, I, I am like, I, I, th you know, I think the world of Brady anyway, 
And then on top of it, like, I would love to go get tattooed in Philly. So to me, it's like a treat. But I think BC is sweating bullets. Uh, okay. All right. I don't know what that means. Let's see. I come from a data analytics background and would love to play around with fight data to see what insights I could glean. Where do you get your data? From Fightmetric? Is there a publicly accessible data set you're unaware of? No, get it from them. Also, there's another gentleman who does uh, stats on on Twitter, Nate something. I forget his name. Please forgive me. But he has a lot of stuff compiled. No disrespect to him, but is Mike Jackson the worst MMA fighter to have at least three UFC appearances? He has four. One and two with one no contest. I mean, you know, he's more i've always knew him as an mma media guy and photographer or whatever who then got into that so it's like you know you're judging him in a probably by like normal standards and maybe that's yes but like i'm not here to beat up on mike jackson like the answer is probably yes but you know his mouth is wired shut right now i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to beat up on him too much but we can avoid it uh thanks for the donation joe i appreciate it here from Captain V. Sup, Luke. You push Sean during the stare. Jan push Sean during the stare down. Is Sean and Jan? I mean, really, guys? Is that what, this is what we're doing. We're doing this fucking body language reading bullshit, right? You ever, you ever seen those people? Have you ever seen a news show? It's like we brought on a body language expert. Get the fuck out of here. You want to talk about complete total alchemy? Zero. I mean, not zero, but pretty close to zero science to these fucking frauds. You know, is he in his head? I don't know. Maybe he wanted to, like, sell more pay-per-views. Or maybe he is. Or maybe he isn't. But the fact that he shoved him doesn't tell you that. Napalm or Corpse? Corpse. Can only choose one. And what underground unknown death metal band do you enjoy the most? Metalheads don't know. I, I don't listen to death metal enough to give you an answer there. Uh, any love for MF Doom? Who doesn't? If you don't love MF Doom, you just don't love hip-hop. Just be very clear about that. The wordplay is some of the most ingenious I've ever heard. What does the definitive loss do for the legacy of Islam and Habib? For Habib, nothing. For uh, Islam, it would be that the the, the pre-fight criticisms were were correct, and that he may not be an elite fighter at all. Right? That would that would be the one thing you would have to go to is like, is he even elite whatsoever? You know, if he goes in there and and I mean, here's the problem with making that argument is that like, Oliveira makes very other elite guys look like shit so it's hard to say that necessarily but we'll see technology's come a long way do you think teleportation or time travel will be invented in our lifetime nope if you could time travel to the past what era would you love to explore none of them don't have any interest don't want to fuck with that at all i think that we should live our lives in the way in which that the universe has introduced them to us I don't have any interest in seeing anything else. I mean, if you mean like as like a gawker to like see what it would be like to like see dinosaurs and shit, I, I suppose that would be kind of interesting. But in general, I don't really believe in. Well, in general, I don't. I don't have any desire to live other than the way that I have. Luke, could you break down how fighters cut weight? For example, when they stop drinking water. Um, God, I used to be on the ins and outs of this. It's a great question. I don't have a good answer for you. Um. You know what? I will have a better I will have a better answer for you next week. I I've seen a many weight cut in, in in person, but I've never really taken like clear notes on it, and I've certainly never done it myself. So I would be giving you kind of a half-assed answer. I'd rather not do that, but I see your question, and I will 
make a note. Othello, if you're seeing this, make a note. Make sure we have a good answer for this next week, okay? What's one question you asked McGregor? Oh, if I interview McGregor, have you taken performance-enhancing drugs at any point during your UFC career? Not that I care if he did, but that that uh, I'd be curious to see what he said. When Dana does eventually step away, do you think there is a case for John Anik to become the public face of the company? No. Highly respected by fans and media and far less likely to court any controversy. Yeah, but you want a promoter that kind of does that. No, John Anik is uh, not that guy. And by the way, you would just want him to be play-by-play guy anyway. I don't think he has designs on that. Guys, promoters, you have to be kind of a, you know, like top rank, uh, PFL, any good promoter. Fucking Bellator, whatever. When the, the Scott Coker's out there just making up stuff about like, yeah, we're in dialogue with Nate Diaz's team. Like, that's not even remotely true. You kind of have to do that sort of stuff as a promoter. That's what promoters do. And so for that reason, like, you do you want people like, oh, Brian Stan would be have been great to be, you know, UFC president. What the fuck are you smoking? Captain America? You want Captain America out there telling you lies? Why would you want that? Uh, I read you started a blog early. How long did it take you to get good traffic? Um, no, don't start one. Do not start one. Work on anything related to social media. You have much more likelihood. Don't waste your time. It, we're living in a completely different era now than the aughts when people could do stuff like this. Work with what the tools are of the modern internet. Um, you know, you could have a newsletter. You could do that. You could have a Substack or any other place. You could do a YouTube channel, TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter, whatever. But you should lean into the platforms where the internet thrives. Um, Substack could be that, but you know, two to three pieces a week at bare minimum, and that's a lot of work, and you have to do it every week. Fuck all that. Do you think the Korean zombie being drafted costed him ever being a featherweight champion? I think it cost him several good years of his career. I don't think it ever cost him being champion. Uh, okay, lastly, a lot of CO's striking relies on left hook Muay Thai. Oh, Charles Oliveira's relies on the left hook to the Muay Thai clinch. Do you think that that gets nullified with Islam Makachev trips and throws from the clinches? Yeah, probably to an extent. Yes, I do think it will. I don't know if it will be utterly disruptive that it never works, but I do think there will. it will be disruptive. Sure, for sure. Yes, I do. All right, and that is it, my friends. One more time. Let me show you this. Here's the shipping address. Luke Thomas News, 2000 Pennsylvania Avenue, Northwest, Suite 7000, Washington, D.C., 20006. There it is. You can send stuff there. Okay? All right. Very good. Uh, just make sure there's nothing left that I'm missing. No, I think that's it. Okay. Thank you guys so much for watching. This will be up tonight before I go to bed. So, if up in the morning for folks who want to get it on podcast platforms. Um, as a reminder, I'm doing the post-fight show for Morning Combat after UFC 280. As a reminder, please go check out my Charles Oliveira blueprint study. I feel like it's pretty comprehensive. I hope you enjoy it. I will make the next one shorter. I promise. I promise. All right. I thank you so much for joining me. I will talk to you next week. And until then, stay frosty. Bitches.